I wonder, um, I wonder if you've had any conversations or discussions recently with people who have a, a distrust or a distaste for organized religion. Have you had any of those conversations lately? In using the term organized religion, people are typically referring to Christianity and some Christian church or denomination or other, as opposed to, for example, the organized religion of Islam or Judaism or Buddhism or one of the many others out there. In recent years, there has been a marked um, noticeable rise in people checking the box none when asked what faith they would hold to. Yet many people would even tell you that they, they like Jesus, just not the church. Yet I believe that that is impossible. I do think it is entirely possible that they are admirers of Jesus in one way or another, and so maybe they look at a portion of his teaching or consider him to be a martyr for his own beliefs, but they reject the church, and if they reject the church, then they are rejecting the bride of Christ. They are rejecting the people that Christ calls his very own. And if you reject the people that Christ calls his own, then by definition, you cannot be his own. We'll put that together with the truth that we don't get to choose which teachings of Jesus we want to accept, right? Either he is who he said he is, and that's not a martyr for his beliefs. Rather, it is the Lamb of God who made an atonement for sin and rose for our justification. And so that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is an undeniable truth to be believed and so the organized religion called Christianity, or, or let me shorten that term to the church, which means the assembly, the coming together, the gathering, the assembling of the saints, was established by Jesus Christ himself. And while it is true that, that many people organized in the name of Christ have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and, and have caused even much damage, have even some have abused those under their care, yet we need to be careful not to throw out the entire church. Instead, I, I think we need another reformation. We need churches who will contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. We need preachers that will hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. We need brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ who will hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering for he who promised is faithful. During the Reformation, and yesterday was Reformation Day, October 31st, 503, or yeah, three years since Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Church of Wittenberg. Um, during the Reformation, so fast forward into the mid-1500s, a document that was, was produced that really is helpful to sort of explain all of these things. And so Article 29 of the Belgic Confession 
has a statement that says this, The marks by which the true church are known are these. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if she maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, if church discipline is exercised in punishing of sin, in short, if all things are managed according to the pure word of God, all things contrary thereto rejected, and Jesus Christ acknowledged as the only head of the church, hereby a true church may certainly be known from which no man has a right to separate himself. Okay, so why am I saying all of this? Because the passage that we're going to look at today, um, it, really, it really is what we see as the first church service. And it begins with Christ himself preaching. At least it's the first post-resurrection church service. So, uh, John chapter 20. I'm just going to read verses 19 to 23. John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you have forgiven the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let's just stop there and pray again. Father, I pray that we would understand the peace that is um, from Christ, that we would know it and believe it and feel it, that we would understand that you have not left us alone, but has given, have given us your Holy Spirit and have sent us on mission. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we should note right at the outset um, that we're not quite sure how many disciples are in the room at this time. It seems from the context, if you just look at the previous verse, verse 18, it seems it's possible that Mary Magdalene is present. Although that clearly says that, that she had seen Jesus early in the morning and now it's later that night, it's the evening of the same day. But she's probably there. Later in the, in the passage following this, beginning in verse 24 through kind of the end of this, of chapter 20, um, John is going to tell us that Thomas had not been there at this time, which might seem strange, um, except for the fact that Jesus had specific things that he wanted to say to Thomas so that John would write them down for us, but we will get at those things in the next week or so, Lord willing. Luke, in his account, near the end of the gospel according to Luke, he seems to indicate um, that the two disciples that Jesus had spoken with on the road to Emmaus, they were also present at this meeting, and they're not named. It may have been a couple of the twelve, but it probably wasn't. 
but they were um, at this meeting as well, as well as some of the other women who had been uh, following him and supporting him throughout his ministry. So when it says disciples in verse 19, it really means a group of his followers as opposed to only those specific men who would go on to be apostles. So the 12 minus Judas and Thomas in this case. In other words, this is a gathering of believers, or at least by the end of this gathering, they're going to be believers. But think back over the last several chapters of John's gospel. Um, really everything, beginning in chapter 13, beginning right at the beginning of chapter 13, and all the way through uh, where we find ourselves today, all of this takes place in one part of a week, between Thursday evening and now Sunday evening. And while it has, I will admit, taken us a long time to get through those chapters, the things that Jesus said then all through chapters 13 through even now, the things that he said, the things that he did, really were fresh in the minds of his disciples, of those who were here. At least some of them had heard him physically say those things just a couple of days earlier. They saw him, at least some of them, saw him hanging on the tree on the cross. Some of them saw him taken down and put in the tomb. And so there are disciples, believers gathered here, and the things that he had said are fresh in their minds. And so beginning in John chapter 13, when Jesus and his disciples had gathered for their last supper, Jesus has specifically, beginning from that point on, he has specifically been instructing them in the ways of discipleship. He'd been instructing them in what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, beginning with washing their feet, all the way through the, through the warnings of betrayal and denials to the promise of the coming paraclete, to the, this other helper who would be sent by the Father and the Son to guide and, and comfort believers, the Holy Spirit. He has taught them what it means to have true peace with God. He's taught them all of these things through these chapters And so John chapters 13 to 16 is really about discipleship. It's really about what life in the church is going to look like. Then in chapter 17, Jesus offers up what we we now call his high priestly prayer. He prays not only for the specific disciples who are there with him, but really for all who will come after them. He, He prays for us. He prays for the church to come. Then, of course, in chapters 18 and 19, we saw the accounts of him being delivered up for our iniquities, him being bruised for our transgressions. In chapters 18 and 19, we see him die for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And as chapter 20 opened, we were confronted with the empty tomb. We were confronted with evidences of the resurrection. And then, and then suddenly, almost from out of nowhere, Jesus speaks the name of one of his disciples, this, this one disciple specifically, this one follower of Jesus Christ. He says, Mary. He speaks her name. And with that, we have come to understand that the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. As Romans 4.25 says, he was raised for our justification. 
And so with his resurrection, our relationship with the Father and with the Son has changed. He mentions there when he tells, he's talking to Mary in verse 17 earlier, he mentions that he is going to go back to the Father. He's going to ascend to the Father. He's going to ascend to his Father's right hand, and that ascension is imminent. But remember, he had also said back in chapter 16, verse 7, he said, nevertheless, I tell you the the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The helper, the paraclete, the other comforter, the Holy Spirit. And so what all of this means is that the gospel, the message that we herald has established that the saving power and presence of God has been made manifest, has been seen through the person and work of Jesus Christ, and he has promised to not leave us as orphans. The claim that John had made back in his introduction, back in chapter 1 of this gospel, that claim has been proven. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And for, from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Christ is risen. And so now as we continue the story on this first Lord's Day evening, Christ finally now appears to several other disciples. Several other, other of His followers. And this isn't some mere vision Um, As some will say, there are no recorded um, instances throughout history of group visions uh, or group hallucinations. He is really there. But this also isn't just simply a reunion of friends. There is something happening here that is completely other. Christ is appearing to them and and he actually comes preaching. He proclaims four important truths for the church, for all who would be his disciples. Let me give you all four, and then we're going to go through them one by one. He comes, first of all, preaching peace. He comes preaching peace. Then he gives a preaching commission. So he comes preaching peace, and he gives a preaching commission. He grants preaching power, and then he bestows preaching authority. Preaching peace, preaching commission, preaching power, and preaching authority. So we'll start here with preaching peace. Verse 19, um, kind of through the beginning of verse 21, says this. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the disciples being locked where the, uh, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. A couple of weeks ago, I I brought up the importance of the Lord's Day as a day that is set apart for Christ's people, as a day specifically for worship and and rest in the Lord. It's a day to join the assembly of the saints for the ordinary means of grace. And, and there, this, this here, this event that we're seeing here in these first few verses is truly the very beginning of this practice. 
We also should keep in mind that the very first Christians, those who are in this room this day, these first disciples, um, they're Jewish ethnically and religiously. They were Jewish. And so they continued to go to the temple. They continued to go to the synagogue on Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath. And then they would meet after work on the first day of the week, on Sunday, the Lord's Day, with other believers. The practice would develop soon that they would meet in one another's homes. We see this as the first several chapters of Acts begins to unfold. We also know from the book of Acts that it wasn't long before these Christians were persecuted. They were chased out of the synagogues and eventually even out of Jerusalem. But at this point, here they are gathered together on the evening of the first day of the week. And we can only imagine their confusion. We can imagine their amazement, their wonder. Maybe, maybe they're listening to Mary Magdalene share her story, telling of meeting him in the garden. Maybe, possibly, they're listening to the two other disciples who who didn't recognize Jesus, were prevented from understanding that it was Jesus when when they were walking with him on the road to Emmaus. Or maybe, maybe these remaining disciples of the original 12, those who are here, maybe they're comparing notes of what he had been telling them for the last three years and searching the scriptures to see if the things were true that he had said to them. Could these things possibly be so? But regardless of what they were discussing, John's eyewitness account here tells us that the doors were locked out of fear of the Jewish leadership. The last thing they needed was a missing body and accusations from the authorities that one of them had stolen his corpse. That's the last thing they had needed. They had just witnessed a couple of days earlier the brutal crucifixion of Christ. They knew what was in store if they were accused of stealing his body. And they are afraid, and they're confused, and they're hiding behind locked doors. Certainly, if the Jewish leadership, the Jewish religious leaders, could crucify Jesus, even with a not guilty verdict three times from Pilate himself, then they, then those religious leaders, certainly would have no problem punishing some grave-robbing disciples who were trying to pull a fast one by saying something like, well, he did say that he would come back to life from the dead. That must be what happened. We hit his body out back. Let me give you two contrasting quotes, though, in an effort to sort of read this room of what's going on here as they're trying to figure all of this out. These are are two different quotes that kind of say two different things but really lead us to the same conclusion. So there's one commentary. I can't remember where I got it. But the writer said this, So violent were the impressions of the crucifixion that even this gathering to hear reports from those who had seen Jesus alive was marked with fear and dread. We know that they were afraid because John tells us that they were afraid. Yet in addition to that idea, listen to what John Calvin says. He writes this. He says, This example is worthy of notice. For though they are less courageous than they ought to have been, 
They still do not give way to their weakness, but they gather their courage so as to remain together. They gather their courage so as to remain together. We should take this to heart. We should take this to heart in these days. They gather their courage so as to remain together. It might be dangerous for us to assemble as a church. It might. And you know as well as I do that there are tons of mixed messages out there about the dangers of, for example, this virus, right? It might be dangerous for us to assemble as the church, but there are those out there who will do anything in their power to stop us from gathering together, to stop you from coming. I want to be careful here because I'm, I'm not really equating the threat of sickness with what they faced, which was a violent death by persecution. But the chasm between those two things, and we have seen this over these last couple of months clearly, the chasm between those two things, threat of sickness and threat of violent persecution, is getting closer and closer together. This year, for us, this year more than it ever has been. And let me give you just one example, and then we should keep moving here because this, this really isn't the point of this text. Um, so this is sort of a side note. You've probably heard that um, Grace Community Church in Los Angeles, the church where John MacArthur is the pastor, they've been meeting against the orders of the state and local health officials, and they've been sued. They've been threatened with all kinds of repercussions. But this week, I read an article, even just the other day, yesterday or Friday, I read an article of another church, also in Los Angeles, in the same county, in the same area. And this other church has worked hard to comply with every restriction that the government has given them. And guess what? Local health officials have been spotted hiding in the bushes, filming people going in and out of the church property. They've been uh, met with surprise inspections. They've been fined for being too noisy because they're meeting outside, which the government told them to do, etc., etc. Now, <clears throat> I know you well enough to know that you're tempted to Google that right now. <laughs> Stay with me. Here's why I use this as an illustration, okay? As John Calvin said, they gather their courage so as to remain together. They locked the doors, they took appropriate safety measures, and they stayed together. And Jesus Christ cannot be kept from joining his people in their need. Jesus Christ cannot be kept from joining his people in their need. Remember his promise, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet in a little while the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. And now here he is with his people just as he promised preaching peace. Look at it again, the doors being locked where the Jews were for fear of the Jews where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, and Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Here he is with his people, preaching peace. He's not a ghost. He has a physical body, yet he has been resurrected. 
And so he is in his post-resurrection glorified state. And yet, because he is God, he is the Son of God, God the Son, he's also not subject to the physical laws of nature. And so the same Jesus that could walk on water now stands among them now, even though the doors had been locked. That's the only way that we can explain that. But what's more important, really, even than his dramatic entrance, which John kind of downplays in the way that he writes this, he just stood among them, what's more important are the words that he proclaimed. Peace be with you. And I hope you understand that this isn't merely a a greeting. Hey, how's everybody doing today? That's not what Jesus is doing here. This is a pronouncement of blessing. This is a statement of truth. Peace be with you. Think of when we start the service every uh, Lord's Day. Either Ben or I, one of us, it's been Ben lately, will come up and, and give an apostolic greeting. It's in the top of your bulletin every week. Something to the effect of grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We pull those directly out of the New Testament epistles because that's how the apostles always greet the church. Sometimes they'll say grace, mercy, and peace. Sometimes they'll say just grace and peace. But if you look through, especially Paul's writings, almost every single letter begins with something to the effect of grace to you and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. So we say that every week when we get together because that's how the apostles always greet the churches. We say it because it's a truth that we need to be constantly reminded of. Peace to you. We say it because this is how God has richly blessed us in the beloved, with grace and peace. So this is the first thing that Jesus preached to his assembled church. Peace be with you. He's declaring the peace of God for those who have gathered in his name. No longer do they face the wrath of God. He's absorbed the fullness of God's wrath in his own body on the tree that they might have peace. Peace from God. True peace belongs to Jesus Christ. And so remember this this week. Whatever happens in the coming days or the coming weeks or however long the hanging Chad thing lasts, whatever happens, sorry. <laughs> Whatever happens in the coming days and weeks, will you remember peace be with you? Will you remember that? Will you hold fast to that statement said by Jesus Christ himself? This is the next logical statement following his final words on the cross. Remember what he said there? It is finished. And now he says, peace be with you. Think of what Peter said. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, he said this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He has promised peace to his own. He's been promising that really all through this upper room discourse, 14, 15, 16. He has promised peace and, and now he has delivered it. 
Now he has, he has drunk of the cup of the wrath of God that we might partake in his peace. And so look at what he shows them. He shows them his hands and his side. He shows them the physical evidence. Just a couple of days before, Matthew said that Jesus had, had said this to them. In, in Matthew 26, verses 26 to 28, Matthew says this. Now as they were eating, just a couple of days before, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is the new, uh, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus now is showing them, showing them his side, showing them his, showing them his wounds. He's showing them that this promised new covenant has been enacted. But he's also showing them a couple of other things. At its base level, he's also giving them proof of the resurrection. He's, this is really him, and he has the scars to prove it. He's going to get into that a little bit more in the next section with Thomas. But he's also showing them the necessity of the cross. He's reminding them of what he's gone through. By his wounds, you have been healed. It was necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. It is the resurrected Christ who comes with power to bring us faith. As Paul said, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. John is showing us the crucified and risen Christ in these verses. He is preaching and he is preaching peace. He's preaching a message that changes their fear into joy. Look at it at the end of verse 20. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. They rejoiced when they saw the, the Lord. Their hearts were made glad. They worshipped. They rejoiced. They responded to the good news. Peace be with you. They respond to this with worship and glad hearts. And even as Christ reiterates his peace there in verse 21, he issues them this commission. This, this is his preaching commission. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So here are some of the consequences um, or the results of Christ's atonement for sin. Just from this passage, there are others, but just from this passage, we see this. The first thing that we can see, uh, a result of Christ's atonement for sin, he has repeated it for us twice, is peace. Peace. Peace with God. Once we come to a knowledge and an understanding of that peace, our hearts then are made glad. The disciples saw and were glad. They rejoiced. So the first result in our hearts of Christ's atonement is peace, granted by him. Once we see that and understand the peace, we can't help but rejoice. Our hearts are made glad. We rejoice in worship. But after that comes his commissioning to missionary or evangelistic work. Go and preach the gospel. Say the good news. 
This is the natural progression of Christ's saving work in a sinner's life. His atonement grants peace, and that peace fills a Christian with joy, rejoicing. And out of that joy, we can't help but obey all of his commands. We can't help but proclaim the message of peace through Christ alone. This commission, this sending that Jesus is talking about here, this is very specific. Jesus even said, as the Father sent me. So what does that mean? Some believe that this means that we are to go with signs and wonders. But Jesus himself argues against that in Mark chapter 1, verses 32 to 39. Listen to what he said. This is at the very beginning of his ministry. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him, because it's our job to proclaim. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon, that is Peter, and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went out throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. It was preaching. He was sent to proclaim good news to the poor. He was sent to proclaim liberty to the captives. And the preaching commission that he lays out for them here is is to proclaim, as Luke elaborates for us in, in Luke chapter 24, he says this, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. This is the message that we are to proclaim. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins because Christ suffered and died and rose again. Now here's why I made a big deal earlier in the sermon here um, about who was in this room at the beginning. So in, in verse 19, here's why I made a big deal about that. Because this is a commission for the church. This is a commission for the church. The chief work of the assembly of the saints, of the gathering of God's people, is to proclaim the forgiveness of sins and the new life that Christ brings to all who will repent and believe. This is the chief work of the church. The chief work of the church isn't social justice. It's not political involvement. It's not building campaigns or motivational speakers designed to, speeches designed to help you to be a better you. The chief work of the church is the proclamation of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ. This is the preaching commission. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And along with this commission, Jesus grants a preaching power preaching power. Look at verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Turn back a couple of pages to John chapter 14. I just want you to look at verses 25, 6, and 7. Verse 25, 26, and 27 of John chapter 14. Jesus says this, 
These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And now, in chapter 20, we are seeing this happen. Those promises of chapter 14, verses 25, 26, 27, they are being fulfilled in Christ here in these verses. Now, it was Luke, in his writing of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts, Luke gives us the most detail of Jesus' gift of the Holy Spirit to his apostles and, and to the church. But these verses, John is writing from a different perspective and with, with a different purpose, um, he is writing clearly to emphasize that Jesus provided evidence in order to establish and, and strengthen the disciples' faith in his resurrection. Evidence that, he, that they could point to, his hands and his side. They saw the risen Jesus. This is why John is writing this. And yet John here continues to use this sort of strange imagery of breathing on them. It's strange. Let's acknowledge that. It's a strange image. So let me explain it. Now turn back to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, when Jesus is approached by Nicodemus at night, Nicodemus who came as a representative of the Jewish leadership, the Pharisees, Jesus had said this to him in, in John 3, I'm just going to read verses 3 to 8. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So in those verses, Jesus explained that the new birth is the work of the Holy Spirit, which he also compared to a blowing wind. So connect that idea. That the new birth is the work of the Holy Spirit, this blowing wind, mysterious blowing wind. Connect that idea to the new, that the new birth is the work of the Holy Spirit. Connect that to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Genesis 2, 7 says this. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. That's the birth. This is the new birth both done by God. Can you make that connection? What Jesus is talking about? Jesus is now breathing new life into these believers so that they are born again to a new and living relationship with God. A relationship that includes the Holy Spirit indwelling them, sealing their salvation, as Ephesians 1 tells us, empowering them to preach peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. All of this is through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is not the preacher's, trust me on this, it is not the preacher's oratorical skill. I had to practice that word. 
It is not the preacher's oratorical skill or terrific personality or charming wit, John, stop laughing, or lack thereof. (laughs) It's not the preacher that brings dead people to life. It is always and only the power of the Holy Spirit. The weight of sin is so great that no one can turn to faith in Christ without the power of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you remember the next two words? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with God, with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I can't save you. And you can't save you. But God. It pleased God through the folly of preaching to save those who believe. That's that's literally what Paul says there in the beginning of 1 Corinthians. It pleased God through the folly of preaching what we preach, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ to save those who believe. And so we preach Christ crucified. Any truly powerful preaching preaching that gives life to dead bones. Think of Ezekiel chapter 37. Any truly powerful preaching is truly proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, and it is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so now we come to verse 23 and the preaching authority that Christ bestows. Verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. We're going to stop here. And pick it up in this verse next week because this is too big to just spend a couple minutes on. Um, This one is very important and it's also very, very misunderstood and sometimes abused. So let me close us in prayer. And then we're going to come to the Lord's table where we will taste and see that the Lord is good. And that his death has brought us peace. Let's pray. Father, as we think of Jesus standing with his disciples, chasing away the fear and replacing it with peace, oh, Father, we we know that this has happened for all who have trusted in you. And so, Lord, we come to you today Help us to keep this truth in the forefront of our minds. The truth that Christ has come to proclaim peace. That that peace is only possible through Jesus Christ who has given us a commission to go and proclaim peace through Christ. And he has given us the power to do that through the Holy Spirit. 
to proclaim peace be with you to all who would trust in him. And so, Father, as we come to the table this morning, we are thankful. We are thankful that Christ went to the cross, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might be saved, that we might have new life in Christ. Father, we come to you this morning, we come to the table rejoicing that Christ's blood was shed to enact this new covenant, a covenant where you have promised to be our God. And so, Father, as we come to the table today, we are reminded that you have made promises to us and that you are a covenant-keeping God. We are reminded that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Father, we praise you for these things and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.